Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 19 is where we'll be this morning. As we continue our study in this beautiful and mysterious and challenging book. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you've chosen to come and worship with us here at Cornerstone. Uh, just give you a little bit of a heads up. The way we study the Bible is we study it verse by verse from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end. And so we've been in the Revelation for quite some time now, and we're closing in on what is the final vision, right? We just began to study the final vision in the book. The book is made up of seven distinct visions all telling us about the life that we live in this church age and what is going to come in the end. And that's where we're closing in on right now. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 19. We started this section last week, so I won't pick back up with the revelation of Christ coming on the white war horse, but I'll pick up in the middle where it tells us what he does. And this is verse 17. It says this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, we do thank you for your word. And and we confess, I confess, that there are passages of Scripture that affect our sensibilities in, in different ways than other passages of Scripture, and this is one of those. This is a picture, this is a symbol for us to help us understand what is to come, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, I do thank you for this time of worship, and I ask that you would continue to move among us, that you would soften our hearts, that you would accomplish your purpose, that you would confront us where we need to be confronted, and that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. And so I ask that you would accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was the spring of 1863. The Union and Confederate armies were positioned in Spotsylvania County, Virginia. The Battle of Chancellorsville was about to begin. And unless you're a a history buff, you probably don't know all that much about this. But I'll tell you a little bit about it. This battle was about to begin. And in the lead up to the battle... Um, President Lincoln turned to a general that he thought was going to help him to turn the tide of the Civil War. He turned to a general by the name of Joe Hooker. 
And Joe Hooker was a very successful individual. He was a strong and confident and, and charismatic leader. And under his command, the Union Army and the morale of that army instantly improved. He developed one of the first military intelligence services. He developed intricate spy networks. And spy networks were not new, but he took it to a level no one had up to that point. He, he did everything he could to spy on General Lee's army to try to get the tactical advantage. He even employed hot air balloons so that he could gather real-time information about the soldiers from the South. And when all was said and done, Hooker's army outnumbered Lee's force almost two to one. He had the intellectual or the, the information advantage by far. And he was so confident in his battle plan that in his speech to the troops, just prior to executing that plan, he said this, Our plan is perfect. God Almighty could not prevent me from victory tomorrow. Now, to a degree, to a degree, we see confidence as a virtue, right? I mean, we, we want the people around us to have certain confidence in the things that they're doing. And we have a tendency to believe that more information will bring about success. But history has proven time and again that overconfidence can lead to some of the most horrific disasters, so Hooker boasted in his advantage, but what happened is Lee outmaneuvered the general. Lee split his smaller force into two forces and feigned a retreat. And as a result of this, Hooker was faced with a, a decision to make. Should he change his perfect plan or stick with it? He even had information. His spy network brought him back information to tell him what was going on. But in his arrogance, he became trapped in his confidence. And he stuck with his plan. The Confederate army managed to outflank their opponent, inflicting massive casualties. Half of Hooker's forces were destroyed, and the Battle of Chancellorsville went down in history as one of the most celebrated victories of General Lee. Where do we draw the line between informed confidence and arrogant overconfidence? We want our doctors and lawyers and leaders to be from the top of their class. We want the greatest, the brightest, the best to be the ones making decisions. We want to have all the information when we make these decisions, but we are quick to forget but that the scriptures remind us that knowledge has a way of revealing arrogance. Pride comes before the fall. And we don't often expect experts to fail, right? I mean, we, we look to the experts. Well, they, they tell us what we should do in any given situation, whether it's political or it's financial or it's medical or there's a pandemic. We look to the experts, and we want the experts to tell us what to do. And we expect the experts to know what to do. And that's a problem because when the experts fail, and they do time and time and time again, and the, the downfall that comes from their guidance is usually more catastrophic because they have more power and more influence. Overconfidence leads to great disaster. In this passage, we see the stage is set for 
what we would understand to be the battle at the end of the age. And it is very much a David versus Goliath type of scene. You have the entire world of unbelievers gathered beneath the banner of the beast and the false prophet. You have this massive army of all the kings of the earth, and they're all set against one soldier on a white horse and his small battalion. It seems as though if you were a betting individual, you would put your money on the army of the world rather than this small little band of resistance. All the armies of the world lined up to fight against a single battalion, but overconfidence plays a huge role in this final battle. This vision shows us in symbolic fashion the final battle in which evil is destroyed once and for all. The enemies of God gather, all the kings of the earth gather, but the battle is over before it begins. And we know the battle is over before it begins because this whole section begins with an angel coming and inviting the birds to come and get ready for a feast like they've never seen. Now, last week I mentioned the fact that this section of Scripture is kind of a a tale of two feasts. We looked a couple of weeks at the the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and in that same context we now have the supper of God, and it is a dreadful meal. So let's, let's study this in more detail. Let's look first at this angel and his dreadful dinner invitation. Look back at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I study passages like this, and, and a lot of what we've studied in the Revelation, we, we see angels over and over and over again. And angels are some of the most interesting creatures in all of Scripture, right? They're mentioned in almost every book of the Bible, both you know, Old and New Testament. And, and angels, well, they're created beings. They have not always existed. They were created by God. They were given a specific uh, responsibility by God. They are uh, spiritual beings. They have moral judgment. They have great intelligence. They have supernatural power. And they serve God in a variety of ways. Um, some of them serve as messengers, right? Actually, the word angel in the Greek, angelos, means messenger. You'll see that uh, over and over. Those, those words are interchangeable. But many of them serve as messengers coming from God to tell men what it is their responsibility to do. You may think about Abraham. Abraham received the messages from God through angels on multiple occasions. You can think about Joseph as he was getting ready to marry Mary and he didn't know what to do because the circumstance went in a different direction than he thought it should and yet an angel from God came and explained to him what was going to be his course in life. So some angels are messengers bringing information to man from God telling them what their life is going to be like. Some angels are warriors, and they serve to bring God's judgment to earth. You may remember back in Genesis, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a series of angels, a couple of angels that came, and they spoke to Lot. They spoke to Abraham first, and then they went to Lot, but they were the ones who ushered in God's judgment on those cities. Some angels fight spiritual battles. The prophets tell us about these angels that have been doing battle in, in, in a spiritual realm. And, and we don't know all of that, but that's what we were told in Scripture. Some of them, very specific angels, are given the responsibility to herald the coming of Christ into the world. Very few angels are actually named, 
Well, the one who came to Joseph and Mary is named in Scripture. And then there are some angels, as we've learned in the Revelation, that are specifically tasked to help explain to John the things that are and the things that are to come. Some books of the Bible contain more information about angels. If you look in the Old Testament, there are three books in particular that kind of rise to the top as they, they talk about angels more than any others. That's the book of Genesis. It mentions angels 15 times. Judges mentions angels 22 times. And Zechariah mentions them 21 times. When you go into the New Testament, Matthew mentions them 19 times. Luke mentions them 23 times. And then Acts mentions them 21 times. But the book that mentions angels the most by an astounding margin is the book of the Revelation, as you might imagine. Angels appear in the Revelation 79 times, more than triple any other single book of the Bible. These angels are bringing information, revealing in symbolic fashion things that we would not know. They give us a vision into the spiritual realm and into spiritual realities. And, and most of these angels are not named. We don't know who they are. They're just described. He saw an angel or he heard an angel. And in this particular case, that's what we get. This angel that we see in Revelation 19 has come to show John something of a vision. And that's what we've seen throughout our study. Some angels come and they escort John through from vision to vision. Some angels actually take part in the visions, and that's what we see here. An unnamed angel has come, and he offers an invitation to all the birds of the earth to gather up for the feast. Now, I don't know what you thought about when you read that, but one of the first things I thought about was I thought about what Jesus said in Matthew 6 when he said that, look at the birds of the air, and he's talking about how we, we worry and we get anxious about things, and he says, look at the birds of the air, they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. I don't know why my mind went there, but that's where my mind went, and, and what we see here in this revelation is the great supper of God is about to begin, and God is yet again going to feed all the birds of the air, but in a really dreadful way. Notice that these birds are invited to the feast before the battle begins. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that there is a certainty to the outcome of the fight. The battle is a foregone conclusion. God's victory is sure. Even though the world easily outnumbers the church, there is no power in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can hope to stand against the might of Christ when he returns. And as we will see as we continue to study, that's the point of this vision. And it is, in fact, a vision. But what is the significance of this angel standing in the sun? I mean, we, we're, we're often told weird things like this. And, and in this case, we don't really know exactly what the point of that is. Perhaps his proximity to the sun makes it easier for him to call on the birds. The birds are in the air. The angel is in the air. Maybe there's a connection there. But whatever, whatever the reason for this, what we do know is that he's, he's making it clear to all of them that they should come and get ready to feast. Now this is, this is like I've mentioned a couple of times, this is a dreadful picture. This is a, a rather unsettling image. But this is not unique to Scripture. In fact, John didn't come up with this on his own. John is actually quoting this, whether it's through that vision or not, but he's quoting this from an Old Testament passage. How many of y'all are familiar with the, the names Gog and Magog? 
Well, in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, as God foretells through prophetic utterance the destruction of these symbolic cities, Gog and Magog, he uses this very language. And just like we've seen throughout our study of the Revelation, John takes that Old Testament language and he pulls it into uh, the New Testament gospel context. But here's what we read in, in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. You shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, of, of rams, lambs, and goats. You shall eat until you are filled and drink until you are full even horses and chariots and mighty men, all kinds of warriors. So that, that imagery is battle imagery. And the imagery is that the, the, the army of, of the world standing against God and his people is going to be so t- totally destroyed that there will no, be no one left to even bury them. That's the, the language here. It's, it's dreadful in its imagery, but that's the point. There's a symbolic significance to this. For a defeated army to be left out on the field of battle, to be ravaged by wild beasts and birds, is a shameful thing. But it symbolizes something for us. It symbolizes their utter defeat, their total annihilation. In other words, this war had one side to it. And the defeated army was completely and utterly destroyed. So so destroyed was this army that there wasn't even one left to bury his fallen comrades. And that's the picture. And, and Ezekiel was not the only one to use that in the Old Testament. You remember David, right? You remember the story of David. Specifically, the story of David and Goliath. David had been an anointed to become the next king in Israel. He was still a boy. Goliath and the Philistine army had been taunting the, the army of Israel for weeks They'd been standing in the Elah Valley and and Goliath would walk out into the valley and he would challenge a champion from the other side. And and, and David heard this as a little boy bringing a a lunch to his brothers. And he heard this and he's like, why are you letting this uncircumcised Philistine talk about our God like this, right? And then David walks out on that field of battle. He he eschews the, 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 the... garb of a soldier, and all he has in his hand is a sling and some stones, and he has his hope in the Lord, and he says, the Lord delivered me from lions and bears in the field. He will deliver me from this Philistine, and here's what David, this little teenager, says to the great warrior of, uh, of Gath. He says this, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, I will cut off your head, and I will Give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with spear and sword. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Now those are bold words from a teenage warrior. But he had every reason to be confident. The language that we're seeing, perhaps it makes you uncomfortable, right? Perhaps to our modern sensibilities, we recoil at the brutality that's inherent in this language. 
Most of us can hardly imagine these kind of words coming out of our mouths, but there is an important meaning behind the language, and it is not simply meant to intimidate our opponents. The point that John is making, the point that Ezekiel is making, and the point that David is making is that there is no king, no nation, no army, and no warrior in all the universe that can hope to defeat the Lord God Almighty. Any confidence that they have is overconfidence. When the battle is over and the enemy lies in ruin on the field, all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. The defeat of the world's greatest kings and mightiest men will prove once and for all that there is a God in heaven. When the mightiest men in this world and all their armies are routed and there's no one left to give them a proper burial, the world will know that they have placed their hope in the wrong type of strength. How many times do we have to hear the story and understand how God works in this world? A tiny stone from the sling of a shepherd is enough to bring down the mightiest warrior. And the message of a crucified and risen Messiah in the hands of simple disciples is enough to change the course of eternity and turn the world upside down. That's the point that we see here. And here's the application. Don't put your hope in Goliath. Don't put your hope in the government. Don't put your hope in the strength of men. Don't put your hope in yourself. Don't put your hope in your own self-salvation mission. Put your hope in Almighty God and in His victorious Son. Because when all is said and done, He remains victorious. And anyone who stands in opposition to Him will fall. Cody read from 1 John earlier. Here's another passage from 1 John, verses 2. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15, and all, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the, pride, uh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, they're not from the Father, they're from the world. And here's the quote, The world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So sure is the defeat of the demonic world system that the birds are called to the feast before the battle has even begun. But what about the battle itself? How does the battle turn out? Well, let's look back at verse 19. John tells us, And I saw the beast. And this is the beast that we met ages ago. The beast uh, and the kings of the earth and all of their armies are gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now the way that we're supposed to understand this is that this is the final battle. And maybe you'll ask the question, is this a real battle or is this symbolic? And I think in many ways it's symbolic because there's actually not a battle. There's no fighting that takes place. The battle is over before it begins. But we've been studying this over and over throughout the Revelation. If you joined us at some point along the way, The way that I understand and the way that I've been teaching through the Revelation is that it is a series of visions. And those visions are not running chronologically throughout history. They are all talking about and telling us about the same period of time. What I would call, what what theologians would call the church age. The age from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And over and over again, we've seen the cycle of these visions bring us from the beginning 
to the end. And over and over again, we've seen this battle imagery, this battle terminology, where the the forces of the earth are arrayed against the people of God and against the gospel, and yet when the end comes and Christ returns, they're completely overthrown and Christ reigns. We've seen this time and time again, but we've never seen it with quite this much clarity, with quite this much detail. You may remember in Revelation 16, when we studied about the the battle of Armageddon, that's the first time we ever saw that that language of Armageddon. Well, in, in Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16, it was kind of a prelude to what we're seeing right here. And, and what we saw there is that a bowl of God's wrath is poured out on the river Euphrates, and the, the river dries up so that all of the armies of the world, well, I'll read it to you. It says, all the kings of the whole world will, were able to assemble for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And that was what was called the Battle of Armageddon, or in the place called Armageddon. Now, that's all we see in that particular vision. Like, the battle doesn't actually go on. We just know that that was happening, and then the end of the vision comes, Christ returns, he is with his people, heaven is opened, and that's where it closes. And that's the pattern we've seen over and over again. Well, we're seeing that again. Only here, we're getting some more detail. And the detail from Revelation 16, which serves kind of like the trailer, the movie trailer for Revelation 19, now we see in full what's going to happen. And this vision symbolizes the entire Christian, anti-Christian world gathered in all of their power, gathered in opposition to the church and to its message. The unbelieving world has always been united in their persecution of Christians. But this vision shows that that persecution in its greatest intensity. And that's what most of us would understand as we think about the end. As, the, as we get closer to the return of Christ, we think about the intensity of persecution ramping up in the world. And I think there's reason to assume that that's, that's likely based on what we read here. With every vision, the intensity increases. And that's what we see. All the people of the world here, all the people who have given their devotion and worship to the spirit of the age, the spirit of Antichrist, they will set themselves against the people of God and our Lord. And this is not new. God is, we've seen this happen in the Old Testament, we've seen it in the New Testament, and now we've seen it over and over again in the Revelation. We see it all the way back in Psalm 2 where we read this, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. There's always been this enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that enmity is going to come to a conclusion when Christ returns. And the picture that we see here lets us know that this is not just humanity in its its evil intentions. There's There's a demonic influence to this. Notice that the beast and the false prophet are fanning that hateful passion into flame. That's what they're doing. The beast and the false prophet, they're driving the the unbelieving world against the church. Those who've received the mark of the beast, which is symbolic of those who have rejected Christ and have put their lot in with this demonic world system, they've given their devotion to the world, and they're going to be a part of this opposition against the church. But you'll notice, like I mentioned earlier, that this is not much of a battle. Let's look at the judgment for the beast and the false prophet in verse 20. It says that the beast was captured. So the battle lines are drawn. Here's this army. Here's this army. And before the first stroke falls, the beast 
was captured, and with it, the false prophet as well. The battle is over before it begins. The demonic instigators of this conflict that we've been studying about all along, they're taken off the board in an instant, and their eternal punishment ensues. The language is that they are, they're captured, they're, they're taken off into custody immediately. And at every turn, what we see is that the victory of Christ over his enemies and the enemies of his people is laughably won. There's no real contest here. Every lofty opinion, every alternative ideology, every atheist argument is completely dissolving into nothing with the return of Christ. The might of men, the strength of the world, it vaporizes like a feather in a nuclear explosion. There's nothing left. There's no hope. And these two figures, the beast and the false prophet, who've caused so much trouble and so much harm to Christians, they have done so much to lead the world astray, and they finally get what they deserve. It says here that they, they are thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and they were, they were thrown in while they're still alive. They're living And that's interesting because that's different than what happens to the rest who are slain by the word of the Lord. And what's that supposed to help us understand? Why are they thrown into the lake of fire as still living? Well, the fact that they're cast in still living implies something about their own spiritual nature. Remember, the beast and the false prophet are spiritual beings. They're not destroyed but will endure God's punishment in an ongoing way. Now we can get into the discussion of hell. What is that going to be like? We, Jesus described hell in this lake of fire where worm does not die and fire is not quenched. And there are theories, ideas, because of our lack of comfort with that concept, pr- plenty of theories to say, well, that's not actually what the Bible teaches. Well, Yes, it is actually what the Bible teaches. And it might arrest your sensibilities in a certain way, and yet it is consistently taught from the lips of Jesus all the way to the end of the New Testament right here. These beings are thrown into the lake of fire while they're still alive. They're spiritual beings. And then in chapter 20 and verse 10, we read that the devil will also be thrown into this lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet. And then we read this phrase, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this leads me, as well as many other theologians, to conclude that the punishment of hell should be understood as eternal, conscious torment, not mere annihilation. Now that's just the judgment for these spiritual beings. What about the judgment for the rest of humanity? Well, look back at verse 21. Once the symbolic leaders of the anti-Christian forces are removed, the army itself will face judgment. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And then all the birds were gorged. The, the, The imagery here, remember Jesus comes with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. That's his weapon. And that's a reference to the word of God. The Word of God which pierces and cuts down to the very joint and marrow. The the Word of God that when we read it, we find it is reading us. The Word of God that puts the standard of God's holiness up and says, do you measure up to that? 
And we like to reduce that and say, well, I want to know how I measure up to other people. And yet the word of God puts itself in front of us and says, how do you stand up and measure up to this? And that word in this particular instance is laying bare the sinful guilt of all of mankind. The shame and wickedness of human sin will be revealed when Christ returns. And the rest, which I take to be a reference to the unbelieving world on that day, the rest will be slain. They will be put to death, which is a different fate, like I mentioned, than the beast and the false prophet. The beast and the false prophet were captured and then thrown into the lake of fire, and yet these, all the rest, were slain. What's the difference? Why is there a difference? Well, here's my reasoning. The spiritual beings, the beast and the false prophet, are not two individual human beings. They are spiritual in nature. And that may be different, I know, than the way you've been taught the revelation, and that's fine if you've been taught something different. That's the way I interpret this imagery here. Their judgment is therefore different than what men and women with flesh and blood will experience, at least in its inception. Humans are made up of body and soul, and I want you to think back to another instance where the judgment of God fell upon all flesh. Humans are body and soul, and just like the world of men suffered physical death in the flood of God's judgment in Genesis 6, I believe that this revelation in the rest of the New Testament tells us that the world of men will suffer physical death in the fire of God's judgment when Christ returns. There have been two tools that God has used to judge the world of sin. In Genesis 6, it was the flood. And when Christ returns, it is the fire of judgment. And then after the death comes the more frightening, eternal judgment of God. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Look, this is a gruesome picture. This is a challenging picture. We've been studying the judgment that's inherent in these verses for a long time now. And I believe that within the providence of God, we need to be reminded of the reality of what is to come. The world of men in their arrogance believe that they have nothing to fear from God. The unbelieving world, much like General Hooker, their numbers far outweigh those who stand with Christ. But just like the Philistine army placed too much confidence in their great champion, the world of men has placed too much confidence in their own strength. And they are going to be trapped by their confidence. This passage shows us what the end will be. It shows us in symbolic battle imagery the return of Christ to judge the enemies of God, both physical and spiritual. All the the men and women throughout the history of the world who have rejected Christ and rejected his word will be judged by the very word they rejected. This is the end that all men fear. Death and then judgment. What do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Well, because there are two groups of people contained within this vision, I want to offer two closing applications. One to those of us who are believers, and one to those who do not believe in Christ. So first, for those who trust in Christ, 
This revelation of Christ's coming victory should, it should comfort us. As Christians become more and more marginalized in a secular world, as Christians become more and more shunted and pushed aside and accused of oppression in a world that has more and more increasingly adopted a, a naturalistic worldview, as we become more the minority within American culture, it is a comfort to know that God hasn't forgotten us. And even though it appears as though the new secular orthodoxy is too big to fail or too prominent to lose, that's not the story of Scripture. Christ and his gospel will triumph over it. And every other argument and every other lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God and the truth of his word. Jesus, along with his people, will triumph. So Christian, let your heart remain fixed upon him. Set your hope fully upon him. Him. Let your mind remain fixed upon Christ and His Word and His victorious cross, which means your pardon from sin and, and your future eternal glory. You have no reason to abandon your hope now. The Scriptures give us every reason to stay confident, informed in our confidence, not arrogant in overconfidence, but informed in our confidence that Christ will triumph. If you have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have recognized your sin and turned from it and embraced the forgiveness of Christ with the empty hands of faith, like I like to say, then be comforted, Christian. The battle for your soul is won and the battle for your future is certain. But what about for those who do not know Jesus? The scriptures don't just teach this in the Revelation. It's been taught from day one. God has fixed into the human experience that all men will die. That's the curse of sin. All men will die and after death will face the judgment of God. No one survives Armageddon. The cataclysmic end of the world is rapidly hurtling toward us and it will claim every life and then God will claim every soul. And the most pressing question for you to consider is what will your future be? How will your life end? When you're called to account for your sin against God, what hope do you have? And I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what my hope is and the hope of every true Christian in this room. My hope is not that God will forgive me because I deserve it. My hope is not that God will love me because I have in some way earned it. I'll tell you what we sing together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is in Christ. Not in myself, not in my plan, not in this world, not in some new idea, not in governments, not in men. Put not your hope and trust in princes. Put your hope in the Lord. My hope is in Christ. All of our hope is in Christ. Because he died the death we deserve to die. And he paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And he was raised from the dead to show that God accepted that penalty on our behalf. My hope is in him. And that's where your hope should be as well. The good news of Christianity, the gospel, is not that we can do all, that God has given us some step-by-step -step plan that we can save ourselves, but that God himself has made a way for us through the sending of His Son. 
and salvation is offered to all who will come to him with the empty hands of faith. Not offering him some of our goodness, but just saying, I have a need, and you're the only one that can fill it. Our hope, our only hope, is in Christ. What will your future be? How will your life end? Will your life be one of the blessed ones who are seated as guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Or will, God forbid, you be served up as food for the vultures at the great supper of God? That's why this passage is here. To confront you with the reality of the end. May God use it to soften your heart to his truth. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for revealing to us things we would not know apart from you showing us. And and though this passage confronts us in a jarring way, Father, it is a grace from you to reveal to us what the end will be so that we can know what steps must be taken today in humbling our hearts and receiving Christ to be prepared for that day. So would you move among us and would you accomplish your purpose and would you soften the hearts of, of all that are here to either trust more fully in Christ or to put our hope for the first time in Christ. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.